Welcome to Zach to the Future. I'm your co-host, Dashiell Driscoll, joined today by Bayside's king of the hill, Mark Paul Gossler. Hello, Mark Paul. I see what you've done there, Dashiell. Well done again with your intro. You worked on that this week. Yeah, it was. I did, unfortunately, and it was still very lazy. It's just the title of the episode, just kind of shoehorned in there. But, you know, it's about you, so I, I feel okay about it. It actually is all about me. Just remember that. No, I got the mug you sent me for your birthday uh, that says that. Uh, no, I... Uh, we also have a special guest joining us later, Ed Alonzo, who plays The Max. This is an interesting episode. We'll get into why it's interesting. We, we've sort of teed it up through this entire season. So without further ado, go ahead and just give us the summary, and then we'll get into it. It's the first day of high school, and Zach's finally going to win Kelly's heart. Only the new kid, Slater, looks like he's going to be competition. So Zach hatches a plan to get detention with Kelly to get some time together. Only Slater figures it out and takes Kelly's spot in detention to foil Zach, their rivalry is established. That's the episode. Oh, Dashiell, I forgot to uh, to ask in the in the previous episode, and I'm sure our fans, um, maybe just your mother, um, is interested. How's the showering going? Have you have you bumped up your showering to maybe twice a day? Yeah, I I, I am clocking a couple two a dayers. It's really uh, but I I I'm just stuck on like a midday shower routine. I can't quite like by the time the the nighttime shower that you're so recommending before bed rolls around. I'm, I'm lazy. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. It's like one last thing to do. So I'm not, I'm not quite living to your full two day, every day potential, but you know, there's always room for improvement, right? And another question about the showering. When you do take that second shower, is it hard not to think of me? And I don't mean that in a creepy way. I'm just thinking like, you right. do think of me when you take that second shower because you're like, Mark Paul told me to take the shower. It is true. Yeah, I do have several things in my life that were not in my life before this podcast. And I think of you every single time. Every single time I make a HelloFresh meal, every single, just you're you're in my thoughts more now than ever. Uh, so Whenever so, you take Alpha Brain, right, whenever, whenever you yeah, take when, an Onnit product. Whenever I'm cleaning whenever you myself. Drink beer, yeah. You're like, this isn't this, this isn't is, a devil. I should be drinking a devil. Yeah. Mark Paul's probably, you know, shaking his head at me for drinking this type of beer. Right. He'd throw this garbage in the trash can if he was here. No, I think about you all the time. So, so mission Thank accomplished. You, we also have an, an update. Uh, I got inundated <laughs> with corrections by the listeners this week. Thank you, listeners. Your dad was definitely in Good Morning, Miss Bliss, but played by a different actor than the actor who plays your dad uh, in the, the main series. He, he actually had a plot line where he was going to date Miss Bliss. I cannot believe I forgot that, uh, but that did happen. And yeah, thank you listeners for correcting me. Dozens, just do- dozens and dozens. So thank you. Listen, my defense is who knew, but apparently you should have. And my fans of yeah, the show, uh, they know. <laughs> Your fans, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your fans, my enemies, we've established clear dynamics. Um, but in the interest of getting into this thing. Yeah, no, let's get <laughs> back episode. into this thing. We, we've sort of Please, teed yeah. this up the entire uh, run of our podcast. This is episode 16. And we've talked about this episode. Yeah. Because this is the official pilot episode of Saved by the Bell. This is this is number one, uh, right? Dancing to the Max, which was number one. How, how do we? How do you? How do, how do we describe this? As it as it initially aired. Cor- so they shot this to be the pilot, but as we heard from Bennett, and as I read about a bit in Peter Engel's book, there were some problems where the crew who shot this was not up to standards, and they were really unhappy with how the pilot turned out. So they kind of shelved it. And it's pretty odd that the episode that should be number one, and when you think about the way the story unfolds and how they're, like, not a lot happens in this because there's so much information. This is Zach. This is, like, you're you're being introduced to all these characters and their dynamics, and Slater, he's from a military family and all this stuff. So 
Yeah, this this was the pilot, and I after watching it now with that lens on, I can I understand why they shelved it. Like I understand why they moved it to the back of the pile. Yeah, there was a lot of exposition. Um, we talked to uh, Bennett Tramer about this as well. The the scenes were particularly particularly long. Um, the, the alpha brain hasn't kicked sure, in. Sure, yeah. I don't yeah. know if I've told you that. Takes a second. Uh, but they're 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 long, and and we talked when when we talked to Bennett Tramer, he said that Peter Engel. Um, Sort of had a mandate to keep uh, the scenes at roughly about three pages, yeah. Uh, and uh, that 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 wasn't the case here. And you can kind of see this was directed by Gary Shimakawa. It wasn't Don Barnhart, um, and Don sort of had that signature look of our show. I think mm-hmm. you know that the, there's there's things that that were not. Um, it doesn't look like they're flushed out yet, and we're we're still like working on it. It feels truly like a pilot, really. Yeah, and it's also like we can kind of call them out in the scenes as they happen, but there are a lot of technical errors, like cameras get bumped or things are kind of roughly out of frame. It's like not, it's not the polished product you want because with the pilot, the Mark Paul, I, you can elaborate on this way more than I can. The goal is to get picked up. Like this is your product that you're putting out there into the market to hopefully. Hopefully, be working on this show for years. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm not so sure that this was your uh, typical pilot because we had done Miss Bliss, and Miss Bliss was, the, you know, Say by the Bell was a spinoff of Miss Bliss. So we, there, there's three characters that we that we or four actually that we bring from Miss Bliss onto this, and the three new characters are actually four new characters um, on, on on this new show. So there was a there was a sense of like I, I knew the producers I knew some of the actors I'm sure some of the crew followed us from Miss Bliss to this um, but yeah you're right about a, a typical pilot um, you're working with new people it is a show that you're trying to launch um, a a network uh, will will watch the pilot and from there they make their decision of whether they want to pick it up and put it on their slate for the next season. Um, I, I'm not sure that this falls into that category though. So I don't know that there was that pressure, but generally you're right. There is a lot of pressure to get a pilot picked up, uh, because you know, you, you want to work for the next, uh, nine months. Um, this is interesting though, you know, opening up in Zach's room, uh, we've, we've talked about Ferris Bueller and how that was for me, yeah. uh, something that influenced me with this character. Uh, again, we, we, you know, we open up with Zach Morris under the sheets. Uh, it reminds me of that scene at, in Ferris Bueller with with uh, you know Ferris in bed and the phone gag. Totally, yeah. And then you know the the, um, the undressing, and then he says, you know, mingle amongst yourselves. That's like the last scene in Ferris Bueller where he's taking a shower and he goes, "Are you guys still here? Go home, go home." That read, especially when he's like, "Don't look at me. I'm ch- a little privacy, please." It's it, when he's changing, and it feels very Ferris Buellery. Um, so that, yeah, right. That makes sense that that, uh, you, we've been talking about that. That stood out to you. Um, did you, what was your, how, how did you feel watching this first scene? I know we've talked about kind of like your feelings broadly of starring in this new show as a kid, like the jump from Miss Bliss to, you know, yeah. what was that like watching it back? Well, watching it back, I, 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 I had different memories in my head as I was watching it and they didn't quite correlate with, with, uh, what I saw on screen, but um, I do remember being very anxious about talking to an audience because on Miss Bliss, we didn't have an audience. We didn't have a live audience. I think there was a laugh track on Miss Bliss. That um, sounds about right. Yeah, I can. I haven't watched an episode. I haven't watched an episode in 30 years. So you'd have to tell me, Dashiell, if there was a uh, laugh track. It's, I mean, I can hear it in my head. It sounds like there is okay. one. <laughs> right. We'll go with that. Sure. Uh, but we had an actual live audience on, on Saved by the Bell. So not only was I talking to a camera, but I was actually talking to an audience. Yeah. And for me, 
uh, you know, that was new. I'd, I'd never done that before. I'd, I'd done a few live audience shows. I think Punky Brewster might have been a live audience. I'm not sure if Charles in Charge was, but that was, I, I was new to being in front of, you know, people that could react to the work that you're doing right there on set. Cause usually it's very intimate. You're just working with a crew and your camera and, you know, you could block everything out, but now you're, you're saying lines and people are reacting. So I know that I had a lot of anxiety with that. Um, but it was also exciting. It was fun. It was, it was a new energy that live audiences bring such a, a great energy to things. You know, when you're at a play or in, in theater, or you go to a, you know, we'll talk to Ed about this, but it, you know, magic shows and things. And it's like you feed off the audience. So I remember that was a new experience for me. Well, let's get into that new experience. And we're in Zach's room to start this whole thing off. Zach's room and then the, the, that big gag with the Kelly coming down with the volleyball was pretty cool. I think we did that gag on uh, the Jimmy Fallon show. Yeah, uh, I think you did. In 2009, when I dressed up as Zach, um, Jimmy brought that down uh, behind me, which was very funny. I just want to point out my wardrobe uh, in this particular episode um, is exactly like the pop doll that I have. Ah, it uh, is. And, and people can't see this, but you and I are on Zoom and I am showing you this in the camera and it is that green and blue jacket with like that sort of uh, watermelon color shirt. It's the same outfit. It's even the same shoes. They they got it 100% from the- uh, Yeah, and, from the little, and the little watch, the little watch uh, on, the, on the left hand there. Um, but I, I never noticed that, and I until I watched the episode, and then I, you know, I have this little pop guy in my office, and I was like, "Hey, look at that!" I know that guy. I know that guy. Uh, yeah, the, the Kelly poster is a really, um, it's it's a. I think we, I you, <laughs> you you said I used the word iconic a little too loosely, but it's an iconic like image that Zach has this like full size drop down of his crush uh, in his bedroom. Um, so yeah, that's that's right there in the pilot. They they were they were going for the gags immediately. And one thing about this pilot is that we we've kept throughout the the run of the show so far is once we get into the hallway, it's very busy and packed, and there's somebody always on that phone. Somebody always on the phone, and I'm I cannot help but see the skateboarders in the hall. Like it is, it instantly sells the picture. We're in California, the kids are cool, and like they're they're skating around. <laughs> you know, that's not our usual skateboarder, right? I mean, you'll see in the next scene. That he high fives another skateboard dude that that's sitting on the on the desk, and that's the guy that uh, stays with us, um, you know, as a, as a background guy. He's our main boarder uh, through the course of the season. Sure, yeah. So we're in the hallways of uh, the hallway of Bayside, and you know, getting the the feel for the school and the the students. Um, and there's just you you mentioned sort of Peter Engel's thing about keeping it short. There, this this is such a long scene um, because it sets up everything. It sets up Slater's the new kid. Zach and Belding's dynamic. You learn about Screech's subservient role to Zach and their friendship. Zach's, you, you get to meet Kelly. It really like, you know, you have to do so much lifting in this scene that it is, uh, it just goes on and on and on. And there's also a couple like of those technical errors I was talking about, like the camera bumps right as we meet Slater. And there's like some weird medium shots in there that, I, the camera felt too low. I don't know. I don't know if you picked up on any of that stuff. Yeah, it just didn't. It didn't feel like the the show that we've become accustomed to. Um, it's there. It just feels rough. Yeah, and that's what pilots are for, are for to sort of you know iron things out. I don't think you ever watch a pilot and go, oh, right. Well, there are there are perfect pilots though. Sure, Breaking Bad, pretty good pilot. Yeah, I knew you were gonna say. <laughs> I, I, was gonna, I was waiting for you to say that. That's, that, that's that. I was yeah. Gonna, yeah as the gonna as the writer thing. on the call with glasses, I'll bring up the Breaking Bad as a good TV show. <laughs> 
Um, it's also uh, just in the pop culture references in the world of Say by the Bell. Mario says, I'm Roger Rabbit. Uh, Roger Rabbit, highest grossing film of the year before in 88, made $330 million. Topical references, just full all the way, all day long and say by the bell. I like the fact that uh, I tell Screech to clean up his locker and he brings out a dust buster. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun, uh, it's a fun gag. And unlike the um, tape recorders we, we talked about at length last week, dust buster is still around and the technology hasn't even changed that much. Uh, I did a small amount of homework on the dust buster because I was shocked that the boombox had Dutch origins as we learned last week. Dustbuster was introduced in 1979 by Black & Decker for the Apollo space, space mission. Uh, NASA needed a portable vacuum or portable self-contained drill to extract lunar core samples. So that's why we have Dustbusters, is astronauts. Didn't, didn't know that one. Uh, but yeah, that, that leads us to Screech's little, little Dustbusting gag. Do you have a Dustbuster, Dashiell? I do. I have a, like a version. It might even be a Black & Decker. I have like a Dustbuster type, you know, wireless vacuum. And I also have a robot vacuum uh, that, is, that, that cruises around just about every day. Uh, it doesn't have a name, but definitely has a personality. Okay, this will say a lot about you, but how many vacuums do you have? I have three. I also have a full-size full vacuum, like a proper, I'm an adult vacuum. But I did cruise by for many years in my 20s with just a dust buster and a, and a, and a sliver of, of prayer, <laughs> just somehow making it through life. Is your, is your vacuum like, does it still have the bag? Like, I, I picture you with like a bag that you have to empty. No, I'm, I, yeah, it's, it's like a Dyson. That's but similar, but the, the one brand lower on the vacuum chain of command. Okay. Cause I have, I have many, I, I'm, I, I probably hoard vacuums. This, so you're going to let me know about your many vacuums. Is this, this is the time? I would love nothing more than to have a vacuum sponsor is what I'm trying to say oh, on, oh, okay. on this podcast. Well, I'm a big so I'm advocate. I'm trying to set that yeah, up. Got it. Okay. You're trying to tee that up. Well, I love, do you have a robot vacuum? Do you have that, that evil in your life? Uh, I used to have a robot vacuum and um, I hmm. prefer to do it what, up what myself. Happened? Well, it just, uh, you know, it, it, I, I, I prefer knowing that I'm doing the job. Um, the robot vacuum, it, it, it's just, it, I, I just don't like this little thing doing that. It's just, it's a, it's a bunch of noise. Hmm. I don't like the noise okay. factor. All right. Um, so, you know, but I have stick vacuums and I have plugins and, and all that stuff. So I were, you know, I trust me floors for me are a big deal. Like taking showers and clean floors. That's life. That's life. Okay. All right. Now, now, and now we know it's almost <laughs> like we don't have to do any more episodes of the podcast. We figured out what life is. Uh, good to know. Um, and moving on, cruising through this uh, this episode. Yeah, again, yeah, like, remember how we talked about the um, the Slater and and Zach tension? I th it's right here in the very first pilot. We we set that up, even with uh, Slater giving me an overly aggressive shoulder slap. Yeah. Um, yep, yeah, right there. Yep. See where as we're watching, he gave me a nice little shoulder slap. Um, that that's that that definitely happens a lot throughout the, the course of this uh, show. Yeah, it, they do, again, in like setting up dynamics in a pilot episode, they, there's like a real villain energy from Slater. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of good. This, this episode also didn't come out first because like it would put the cards too clearly on the table that like, ah, Zach good, Slater bad. Because this does feel like he's, he's the villain. Um, that's, that's how it reads to me. Uh, to, you know, you only, you get, it softens up a little bit at the end, but... Yeah, there's that there's that weird camera angles when Zach is talking to Screech. It just doesn't look right. <laughs> it's I I can't put it any better than that. It just does not look right. So then we enter the classroom and who do we see, Dashel? Tell him. We see Mr. Dewey. Mr. Dewey's back. 
And I did a little homework, Mark Paul. Today is a Sunday. That means yesterday was a Saturday. And while many Americans were celebrating the win of Joe Biden, uh, I was I was at home watching Dead Man on Campus to find out when Mr. Dewey appears and if you share a scene with him. Good news, you can rest easy. You don't. Uh, you, Mr. Dewey is a blink and you'll miss it cameo in the very end of the movie. It's like within the last 90 seconds of the movie. Uh, and he doesn't even have a line. So you are not, you're just not in the movie with him in, in the same scene anyway. So by the way, fun movie, Mark Paul. I'm just going to say it. I enjoyed it. I will let you know I enjoyed rewatching that movie. Thank you. Uh, one of your, your zany roommates. Yeah, no, no, I enjoyed it. One of your zany roommates, um, he like goes to confess to the priest and priest gets weirded out and runs away and it's Mr. Dewey, but it's just like an awkward priest uh, leaving a confessional. That's it. That's his whole role in the film. Interesting. I'm sorry you had to stick through yeah. the whole film to, you know. to catch Mr. Dewey at the last 90 seconds. It was a, it was a little hit of nostalgia for me being like going back to seeing that 11 years old, way too young for most of those jokes. Um, and it was, it definitely in a weird way shapes on my dark sense of humor. So what's up with uh, Slater at the end of this scene here in the classroom with that wave, that wave, we've seen that before. Yes, the wave. Or did he start the, the, this the, wave? The, because this is the first pilot episode. Because it, it's the pilot. Yeah. I know, yeah. It would appear that he... So there's there's a few things in this episode that like are echoed earlier in the season. Some kind of weird time continuity stuff. But yeah, the wave from Kelly in Fatal Distraction. Um, yeah, that that could be an echo of this in the pilot. It's just they're out of order. It feel, it, It's the same wave. I mean, they. I wonder if Gary did that episode too. Oh, that's interesting. That's right, because it, I guess it is we'll an awkward know. way to wave. <laughs> it's a weird, it's a weird note. Like someone, I mean, unless the note was like, "Hey, remember the wave from the pilot? Can you just do that?" But yeah, it is. It is an awkward. I, I can't even think of the thing. It's like a, a teasing wave. They're both doing. And then after the classroom, we are in the max, and uh, there's something. And that's Act Two. Yeah, there's. Oh, th- uh, thank you yeah. very much. Act Two. Look at that. <sighs> almost, almost missed the act break, Mark Paul. Look at that. God forbid. So yeah, there is something that Jesse says right at the top of the scene where she says it's it's nice not to eat in the cafeteria. I think that's the only time we ever in all of Saved by the Bell are to understand what the hell these kids are doing in a restaurant all day long. Uh, she's just like, so it's like, oh, they explained it in the pilot. It's what they do instead of lunch. They go to the, the they go to the max instead of the cafeteria. Uh, one seems expensive. And two, I, I mean, I sure it's, I get it. I get it. It's fun. And it's, but that's insane. No, no one's going to, no one's going to a restaurant every single day well, for lunch. You know who might have the answer, Dashiell? And this is an organic way for us to get into talking with our guests this week. None other than Ed Alonzo, who played Max in the first season. Hi, Ed. Good to see you. Hey. Hi, Ed. Oh, my goodness. Hearing all of this just makes me so excited. Reliving the moments and oh, the behind-the-scenes stories. Wow. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. This is great. Thank you for making the time. Yeah, thanks for making the time. We, we, we have so many questions. Can't wait to get into them. Um Dashiell has a lot uh, of, uh, he, want, he wants to critique some of your magic that was on the show. I just want to put it out there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you right under the bus. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I know the name of the game. <laughs> yeah. So if you've heard any of our podcasts, Dashiell sometimes uh, will comment about some of the, uh, the magic uh, that you do. Um, and we have questions like, 
First of all, how did you audition for this role? I did. Um, I had auditioned for two roles during the same time period. NBC was creating another morning show called The Great McGonagall. And it was like a soupy sales bozo, but he was a magician and he was doing a kid show. So I auditioned for that one and they had me on hold. They wanted me to be the star of the show. There were going to be some kids on it. And then I auditioned right after for Saved by the Bell, same network. And right away they put me on hold. And I remember I said to my agent, I said, there's two ways this could go. If, if I stay with the Saved by the Bell, it's guaranteed seven episodes, but it's a very small part. If I do the other show, it's a pilot, but I'm the star of the show. I'll be, you know, throughout the whole episode. I said, I think it's the safer bet for me to just do the seven episodes with a show that's going to feel more like a sitcom. And I think that... I may have more longevity there. So I dropped out of the great McGonagall. They found another actor magician. So luckily in hindsight, I made the right choice and hung in there and, uh, and went for playing Max, which turned out to be a blessing, of course. Well, but give, give us a bit of your background though, like before you auditioned for the show. Well, right. See, 89 was the very first episode of Saved by the Bell. And I had kind of developed a character for my magic act maybe three years prior to this. And what I had changed from being the regular suave magician is I changed my hairstyle and I put on some glasses, little round Harold Lloyd type glasses. And it kind of changed the way I walked and moved. And I really put a lot of effort to uh, making this a character a magician, an actor playing the part of a magician. And it, it changed my life over overnight. I started doing uh, appearances on, on the late, late show with Arsenio Hall, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. I did an HBO special uh, for kids called Life from Planet Earth. It was just a ton of work coming in. I was doing the same magic tricks, but the change of changing my hair and putting on glasses and kind of in the beginning, I was just kind of a little nebbish, nerdy character. And when Saved by the Bell came along, I went into the audition with the apron, with the tuxedo coat, <laughs> loaded with magic tricks. And I really blew them away, not with the tricks so much, but because I was doing a lot of gag things like in this episode we're talking about where I say I'm a little shorthanded, I was doing that kind of stuff in the audition, which was never really written, but they knew that they wanted someone who did magic or juggling or was sort of a variety act to play the part of Max because the Max Diner was created after Ed DeBevick's, uh, a Beverly Hills restaurant. We know it and well. And Peter Ingle used to go there all the time. Yeah. And I did too. I used to go in there all the time and hang out with the waiters and the, it was so fun. So when this, when the sides came out for me to audition for Bell, I was looking at the script going, this isn't the Max, it's, it's Ed DeBevick's. And I went in there trying to be the goofy waiter doing little things and still tried to keep the tone of I could still be the big brother and offer some advice to these kids now and then, and not only end it with a gag or a joke or a zinger. And I think that that kind of worked well. So Ed, the, the gags and the jokes and some of your magic, would you 
go to the writers beforehand and say, this is sort of what I have in my, and, and, you know, in my catalog and you can use this or would they, or was it the reverse where they would come to you first? Well, I made a grave mistake. Um, because I now was on a Saturday morning sitcom and prior to being a magician, I was an actor. I was doing school plays. I was doing commercials. I was doing a little bit of work, but not enough to make a living. So when I got this job, I was full bore ready to do some acting. I didn't want to do any magic tricks. The gags I thought would be fun. So I said to Peter and the writers, I said, write whatever you want, right? Max walks in, he makes some hamburgers appear, then something else happens. And I said, I'll figure it out. <laughs> and I thought that I was going to be having um, my way by them just writing more dialogue and jokes. And it was really the opposite. They wanted to do more magic. So a lot of the magic is so obscure and crazy <laughs> because the writers wrote the magic as opposed to me saying, oh, well, let's do the floating ball trick, but let's change it to a soup ladle. I never did that because I didn't want to offer myself as a magician. I wanted to offer myself as a comedy actor. And that really never happened. But as the episodes went along, I got the idea and I said, okay, I surrender. Every time I show up, I'm going to do a quick trick and I'll be back in the dressing room hanging out. And that's kind of what happened. So your magic tricks were written by people with no understanding of magic whatsoever, just trying to write, Absolutely. just trying to write gags. That answers a ton of my questions because <laughs> a lot of it, a lot of the tricks yeah. don't even feel like magic. Uh, a lot of them are like more like prop comedy, or you know, it's like there's there's a lot of things that are just like it. It I I guess I would say you feel underutilized would be my my thought as a magician. I mean, it sounds like you were trying to do other things, but as a magician. To have a magic waiter on the show, you're certainly underutilized. That's that's my critique of, yeah. of it. Now, had I been smart, I would have done this. I would have gone in and I would have said to the writers, hey, why don't I have Lisa levitating here on the table? She spins around 360, stands up, and she's in a completely new wardrobe. Yeah, we could have made that happen. But I didn't want to be the magician. I right. thought, oh, this is going to be my launching pad to, <laughs> to doing comedy, uh, acting on other shows and movies. I think it, we, we all thought that. But once I realized that it was really more about that they just wanted the tricks in there. And there were other people on the show that were encouraging that I continue to do magic and less comedy and dialogue. Or at least that's the way that I felt. I think years later, I realized that they were really just doing what was best for the show. Because as you know, talking about especially this uh, was supposed to be pilot episode. There is, I think I have the most uh, time on camera during that show because they didn't really know whether the Max character was going to work. They brought me in because they thought it's Saturday morning. We still want to entertain some of the littler kids. If we have some quirky tricks and things that will fulfill that need. Well, two, three episodes in you guys all started to gel and there was a whole nother chemistry that came to where the adults of the show weren't really needed so much because it was the impact of the relationships 
between the kids going to school and, you know, Dennis as Mr. Belding kind of keeping the, the boat moving along. Like he was kind of the captain, but, uh, that was my demise was the fact that the show was becoming successful because then I was utilized even less. There was even an episode that came up where I received the script uh, the week before we'd get them on Friday, the week before. And there wasn't even a, a scene in there with one word of dialogue. And I think, I think it's the next episode that you guys are going to talk about, uh, which is save the tiger they just have me juggling in the max. <laughs> oh God. And it was, I remember Peter saying to me, you know, can you juggle? And I said, I can juggle, you know, good. And they gave me these spongy footballs that are, if you juggle it all, you know, you need to have something with a little bit of weight into it so that when you throw it, it comes up. Well, they gave me these lightweight sponges and <laughs> during every rehearsal, uh, Wednesday to Friday, including the pre-tape, on Friday, I never dropped it one of those damn balls. Well, sure enough, the live audience comes in and we're doing this beat, the beat, you got to beat, beat that thing. And I'm trying to juggle to the beat. And sure enough, I drop one. Well, that's the one that ends up in the episode. <laughs> Is you see Max drop the freaking ball and I have to like quickly pick, pick it up. Oh, it was devastating to me because I remember after that, I don't remember who said it. it was like, oh, that's a shame that you dropped the ball. And I'm thinking like, wow, I'm really underused here. I'm just a juggler. I'm just a mime. I'm just this. So it, I had a really tough time in there. But I have to say the thing that kept me going through was really just hanging out with, with the cast, with the, with the kids at that time. Uh, the last time I even saw Mark Paul, up until when we did the, the reboot, you were like, 17 or 18 years old until we fast forward, you know, until uh, the last couple months when we're shooting the new belt. So it was a crazy time for me because I was so frustrated to get the script every week and go, Oh, I've got one little thing. I'm doing a trick. That's not even that great. And then I, I walk off camera and I'm done for the episode. But in hindsight now, it was a blessing to even have a part on this show that became such an icon and such, I mean, wow. I don't think any of us ever thought that it would be what it has come to be. No, I was going to ask you, I mean, while we were filming it, we always, I, I we, we've said this in, in previous episodes, but we always thought we were going to be canceled after every season. Uh, we never thought we'd come back. Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, we had a deal for seven shows and that was it. We were officially kind of canceled. And then my agent called and said, they're going to do another, um, 13 episodes. I was like, great. Okay. And we did those 13 episodes and then we were kind of technically canceled again. And then the next order of shows, then it just continued and continued. There was no more cancellations, but I remember we were even having like rap parties in the max early on thinking this could be it. This, it might be done. Who knew syndication? That's what made it popular. It's really interesting hearing your perspective of someone who had a starring pilot on deck and then took, like, presumably the safer, you know, you were right, the safer career option to have guaranteed episodes, but then to feel like, wow, I'm a, I, I'm a magician with an act, and I'm on TV, and I can't, and I'm frustrated. Like, I, I would think a lot of magicians would be so excited to, to like, it's like, I made it. I'm, a, I'm doing my magic on television, 
but it's like this, like not what you want to be doing or like that, that that's what a, I mean, <laughs> what a, what a weird position to find yourself in. Oh, it was awful. Here's a crazy story. So when I was doing my magic act and I would appear on, appear on evening at the improv or a comedy club show or whatever, my character as a magician was a little different. And I had these little sayings that were clever. And one of them, after I would do a trick, the audience would sort of laugh or whatever. And I would go, oh, quit it. Like that. Well, my buddy, Dustin Diamond, we were hanging out all day long. He loved magic. And I'm showing him magic tricks all day long. And we would walk around and he would imitate me going, oh, quit it. And so... I get a call from Peter Ringle and he takes me up to the office and he says, uh, Dustin's got this phrase that we'd like to put in the show. <laughs> and he said, oh, no. And it's this, oh, quit it thing. And I look at Peter and I said, you know what? I said, I've got a ton of these kind of character things that are little catchphrases and some things that would be great for me that are from me. Why couldn't I do them? Dustin's got so much comedy. He's the comedian of the show. He gets laughs every show, whether he even says anything or not, because he's just a, a comic genius. And yet they wanted, they were holding me back. And I said, no, I don't want to give you the line for him. That was another fatal mistake. Wow. Because of course, then it, oh, I should have just become a writer on the show. <laughs> and I, I probably could have said, hey, I'm going to come in. I'm just going to do, you know, kind of, uh, I'm going to punch up the jokes a little bit for Screech and give him funny things to say. But those were such hard times for me. Well, it was it was great to see you. It was great to see you walk in the door of the writer's room for the reboot. Uh, we've sort of touched on it, and it's I think it's certainly out there. You're in the trailer. Um, so it was, it was really exciting to get to meet you in that capacity and uh, kind of like a, what, it was. I think you're one of the first cast members to stop by, besides the the new right. kids, um, to be like, to be like, whoa, this is really happening. <laughs> like, um, it was cool. And you told a story when you walked in. So I think I think it's worth noting that you've been working really steadily since Saved by the Bell. I mean, to, yes. To tell the Ed Alonzo story is to say, um, when, when you, you started telling us about like what you've been up to, and. It, what fascinated me was magic is used mostly now by touring musicians. <laughs> like touring musicians need magic more than anyone. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's, that's what you've been up to. It's, it's been crazy for me. You know, after I was done at Saved by the Bell, I continued with what I was doing, getting little parts on other shows. In fact, right after I was done with Saved by the Bell, I was hired uh, to be a, a secretary on uh, Murphy Brown, which was the highest rated show at the time. It was very political. And they had a gag that they did about every two, three episodes where Candace Bergen Murphy would fire a secretary. The secretary would be there for like one scene and then she would go, you're fired. Way before The Apprentice was saying you're fired and all of this, Candace Bergen was doing it. And I got this audition I read the part and I thought, whoa, I'm not going to do the big hair. I'm going to slip my hair down. I'm not going to be in the tuxedo coat. I'm going to dress as though I should belong at the office, but still I'm going to have this zany line read. So I got the sides. I'm looking at it. And I go, it, as an actor, sometimes you read the sides or the script and you go, this is my language of the way that I naturally speak. And then you go, 
uh, this is it. And I went in, I read for the part, nailed it, and, and did Murphy Brown right afterwards. And that one appearance of Murphy Brown, I think I'm on camera with dialogue longer than all uh, 22 or 23 episodes <laughs> that I'm on of Saved by the Bell, which is crazy. So that's what I was going to ask you. So you, you did 20... 20 plus episodes of Saved by the Bell. See, I, I, I don't have, I mean, this whole podcast is built on my lack of memory. Uh, but I was telling, yeah. I was telling Dashiell that I thought you were on for the entire run of our show for four, four seasons. Um, I was taken out kind of quick um, after, you know, the, Oh, quit it. And a few other things. <laughs> there was another disaster that I had. Oh, and, uh, oh this is amazing. I love it. Peter yeah. Ringle's birthday. And I, I, I talked about this one other time in another interview, and it's the only time I've ever spoken about it. We had just shot the Lisa card where she gets, goes on a shopping spree. Oh, we're very familiar with that a, shit show of an episode. Just a, a great one. <laughs> the, um, they wanted me to make Lisa appear out of some sort of a box where she was going to be in all the fashion that she just went shopping for. So I actually did guide uh, you know, Chuck Hughes and the, the, the effects people over there on what kind of magic box to build this. It was the magic serving cart. And uh, the cart is empty. And I close the curtain and I open the curtain again and Lisa pops out. There it is. I exit. I'm back to the green room. So now after that episode, it's Peter Ingle's birthday party. And a couple of the staff members come up to me and they say, could you make Peter's birthday cake appear? <laughs> I said, well, I don't really have anything. Well, what about the serving cart trick? Well, they didn't know how it worked or what it was. And I thought, oh, I don't know that that's going to work. Well, I'm going to tell you part of how this trick worked. There was a trap door at the top that would fall down like a guillotine and cover an area where Lisa was hidden in this box. That's all I'll say. So we have a door at the top. So I said to the, the staff, why don't I just put the birthday cake on the panel below, close the curtain, I'll wheel it out, undo the curtain, and the cake will be there. Well, here's what happened. I put the cake in there, I wheel the thing out, and just before I go to open the curtain, the fake wall falls and basically slices the cake in half. <laughs> and I see that it's sliced in half, I'm trying to sort of fix it with my fingers a little bit. Trying to, you can't repair frosting. If you've ever messed up a birthday cake, you can't go back and redo it. It's impossible unless you have the squeaky things to put the frosting on with. So the cake is, it's demolished. The curtain opens. Peter looks at the cake. He looks at me and he says, Ed, what happened to the cake? I froze. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of giggled and I just backed away. And that was that. And he silently said, I'm going to make and you disappear. Thought that I wrecked the cake on purpose for, I don't know what, what he thought. Boy, that was just another, another thing where I felt like I can't do anything right on this show. And the only little light at the end of the tunnel came later for me with the episode called Dancing to the Max, which, as we know, was the pilot episode that they played in, in primetime. And I think they 
they wanted to do that for a few reasons. One, the King of the Hill was a little sloppy, but we had Casey Kasem in it, and American Top 40 and uh, the, the television version of that were the biggest shows out there. And to have Casey Kasem on Saved by the Bell was, he was the biggest star of that time. So I remember getting the sides the week before on Friday, and I went to San Diego on the weekend to a magic convention. I drove there, and I started to think about what could I do to change my line reading to give myself a little advantage here. So I looked through the script, and basically all it had me do is say, ladies and gentlemen, here he is, the one and only Casey Kasem. I thought, what am I going to do with that to make it? They haven't even given me a chance here. There's no jokes. There's... And then it hit me. I have to say Casey Kasem in a Casey Kasem impression. So I start practicing for two hours on the way driving to San Diego. Casey Kasem. <laughs> Casey Kasem. Casey Kasem. We'll be right back. Casey Kasem. And I thought, okay, Monday, I'm going to do it at the table reading. Well, Monday comes along, table reading, and who walks in? Casey Kasem. Wow. He's going to read with us at the table reading. And I have this <laughs> surprise reading, and I'm sitting at the end of the table, and I do it, and I say, here he is, the one and only Casey Kasem. Oh, and God. it was silence. And Dennis Haskins looked up, and he said, hey, is that in? And I don't remember who it was. It was Tom Tenowich. Someone said, it's in. And I thought, I did it. I broke the ice. They now know that I can do impressions. Maybe I'll be able to do more. Well, it was a glorious episode for me, but it didn't turn out to be the thing where they took notice of it and said, you know what, maybe we could have him do a little more. Like, couldn't he come up and do a great pratfall or have a funny line? Or It never really turned into that. So I just always played it as the big brother with a quick trick to brighten up you know, one of the Bayside's day. See, and those are all, uh, all uh, things that I, I'm sure myself, well, I know me, but the rest of the cast as well, were completely unaware of uh, all those things that were happening. Yeah. As a viewer, it's like, it's actually kind of, I mean, it's a little sad to picture you like giving this advice, doing a zany little trick. And then, like you said, like going back to the green room to be like, Oh, like, like that's like that's a that's a very bizarre backstory to to be open. Thank thank you for sharing it. But hold on, hold hold on, Ed, hold on. You 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 didn't go back to the green room. You had a dressing room, right? I did have a dressing room. Yeah, okay. I did. You know what? I had a dressing room, which was right in the hallway of the Tonight Show. So we'd see Johnny and the guests every day. Well, one of the times I must have pissed <laughs> someone off because I came to work and my name wasn't on the door, <laughs> and I said, "What happened to the dress?" Oh, we've moved your dressing room. So I thought, okay. So they take me upstairs and you turn around the corner and around another corner. Now there's another long hallway. And now I'm up there with nobody. So I was like, wow, I must have done something wrong to get moved up here. What's the problem? And then all of a sudden I start to hear a trumpet next door to me. Doing scales. It's Doc Severinsen. So they moved me up there. No one else wanted to be next door to Doc Severinsen's dressing room because he's blasting his trumpet an hour before the show, warming up his lips. And so now I'm hearing for the, all of the hours that I'm hanging around, driving me crazy. Unbelievable. And I thought, I, I, I've, they've kicked me off the main floor. This is awful. 
Then there was a day where it changed my attitude. I got a call to the dressing room, come down to the set, we're ready to rehearse Max. So I put my apron on, I open the door, and Steve Martin walks right by the dressing room door. And I freeze. And he turns the corner, and I hear him say, and it was a pleasure meeting you as well. And I thought, holy cow, that is the, whoa. He knew that I was like a deer in headlights, frozen. But after that, I thought, okay, maybe this second floor isn't so bad. There must be another reason. Crazy. It sounds like they were trying to get you to quit. <laughs> it sounds like they were, they were creating an increasingly difficult environment. <laughs> so well, basically, I, th- I think they were because then at one point, you know, later on, when we were at about 21, where I was about 21 episodes, and they said, well, we want to focus more on the kids, and we're going to let you go, but we want to bring you back, you know, once in a while for this and that. And I said, well, hey, okay, what can I, hey, that was it. What can I do? And uh, then uh, I, I talked to my agent. He was like, oh, this is horrible. We have to figure out, you know, we, uh, let's call him up. Maybe you can work cheaper. And so he worked out a new deal. And I went back and I think I did, you know, a few more episodes at the New Deal, which was fine because I realized that the show was really, really becoming more about the the Bayside kids. That's where the focus was going. And uh, they were going to bring me in when they thought they needed Max. And the last time they brought me in for a few episodes. And then my last one was uh, where the Max catches on fire. And uh, in the new in the new class. It, it, that's uh, that's the new class, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so I come back for that episode, and that one was an emotional one for me because when <laughs> when I saw the script and I saw, well, that's going to be it. There'll be no more guest starring roles. The Max is burning down. It was emotional for me on set, and I think you can even see it in that episode where we're all lined up before we do the high five that I think I might have been a little weepy because I it really hit me this is it for me. This is going to be my last one. And it was just a time where I was like, wow, I think the thing I'm going to miss most is just hanging out with all the kids. Um, this, this was a crazy story that I even, you know, mentioned to you, Mark Paul, uh, a few weeks ago, right when you were getting your, uh, you were getting ready to take your driver's test and you needed to practice driving. <laughs> and I said, hey, my car's right in the parking lot. Why don't we go out there at lunch and you drive around? At that time, the NBC lot in front of the main building where they had the commissary was never that busy. So we went out, we came in, you know, past the guard gate, and you would just circle around the lot a few times. I was like, you got it. You got this nailed. It's no problem. And I guess the next week or whatever, you went and took your test and and there you were. You got your learner's permit. Not too many people know this, Ed, but I was uh, I was basically jacking my mom's car when I was thirteen. Uh, she used to work as a um, as a, uh, a, a a sort of a flight attendant uh, uh, in the lounge uh, for KLM, um, in, in like the you know the, the the first class lounge. And so she'd be gone for most of the day when when we weren't on set. You know, she'd be gone for most of the day. So I'd come home from school. And her car would be in there because my sister would drive her to Van Nuys to take the bus to work because, uh, you know, that, that flyaway bus, it was just easier to get through traffic. So her car was always there. So I would just jack her car when I was 13 and drive around the neighborhood. So I was a pretty proficient driver by the time I got, uh, you were. I got to you. 
<laughs> Pretty proficient thief, it sounds yeah. like too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that, I I may have bought that car for her, so in my mind, I you know I was I was definitely thinking uh, like it was your own, you know, right. at okay. that at that time. I don't. I, I it, it's not for, for certain that I did buy that car, but in my mind, I thought you know I was making money at that point, and I didn't know where my money was going. Yeah. Um. So maybe I cars you right know, Maybe I put a bit of a, a down payment into this car, so technically I own a piece of it. So um, I would just right. take it for a little spin. Well, you. You are a great driver, and now the secret's out. I had no idea that you were just kind of fine-tuning to make sure you knew the rules or whatever. But yeah, like you were blazing around that lot with no problem. I said, hey, you got this. It's a side of child acting you don't often hear. Uh, I bought my parents that thing, so I guess it's mine too. Uh, that's that's refreshing. Usually you hear like, <laughs> I, I don't hear, that sounds like you were very um, self-aware at a young age, so good on you. Well. Uh, we, 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 I, I think our parents did pretty good, um, because I, 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 you, I'm sure you can attest to this, Ed, but we were pretty good kids yeah, um, really. and we were kept in line by our parents and by each other's parents. It was one big community between us, uh, because all the parents, if they weren't working, they were on set with us and they would kind of hang out and the kids would kind of hang out. So it felt very communal. Um, but they kept us in line. I mean, you guys kept us in line. I, 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 I know that. You know, if there was an, ever an issue, we'd come to you and talk to you about things or, uh, or, or you guys would be honest with us and, and, and tell us, you know, that this isn't appropriate and, and uh, uh, felt like an open relationship uh, in a good way. Yeah, that, w- that was the thing that I was really missing the most, you know, after I had, had left the show was the, the great community that we had. But yeah, all the kids were great. All the parents were there. I was friends with, with you know, your mom and dad and uh, Dustin's dad and mom that would stop in once in a while. She wasn't there, you know, too much, but you know, uh, Mark Diamond was there all the time. And, uh, you know, it was just great. It was, you guys were really good kids. It's a shame, you know, later in the screech book that he has all of these blastful things and uh, chaos that the kids were getting into that never happened. Um, just to try and sell a book, but no, you guys were fantastic. You know, the, oh, I remember the only time that I had a little disagreement with Mario was there was a there was a scene in the Max where I had to make a chicken appear out of a top hat, <laughs> and I I forget which show it was, but it was basically uh, the one of the girls says, Max, you know, what did you you know what were you doing for what what did you want to be for a living? And I sound like oh, I was trying to be a magician or a cook and I wasn't very good. Anyway, a chicken pops out of the hat. Well, Mario was always sitting in the chairs backwards. And I said, to make this trick happen, where I'm actually going to get the chicken from, he can't be in the chair backwards because I need the back of the chair. And oh, what a, oh, I can't turn, we can't sit normal. And I said, it's the only way to do the thing I've got to, <laughs> otherwise I've got to put the poor chicken on your back. I need the back of the chair to have the thing. Oh, so in all of the episodes, there's only one scene where Mario sits in a chair normal, and that's this one where the chicken pops out. And that was the reason for that. Well, you know, we, we've brought this up in previous episodes as well. There's a lot of uh, magic that you do with fowl. Yeah, with there's, there's, yeah. With, yeah. Yeah. Which you, you work at a restaurant. Like. <laughs> Everything was definitely fresh uh, on the menu. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, I was always using ducks in my regular magic act before I was doing Saved by the Bell. And I, I had ducks at home even at the ta- that time. And it came to the point where after I did the chicken 
that the writers said, oh, well, you know, maybe use one of the ducks. And that's where we did the, uh, I guess it was the Mambas and Papas episode where the, we're all formal and the duck pops out of the menu, which gave me the opportunity to really do a really strong piece of magic, a, a, a piece of magic that was from my childhood that I recreated in the menu. There used to be a folding screen thing that I did when I was a kid about seven or eight years old called the Chinese temple screens. And you'd show these screens empty and you could produce handkerchiefs. And I thought, what if I make a big version of that that looks like a max menu? You can see the whole thing empty and then a duck pops out. And it was really the strongest piece of magic that I did in all of the episodes. It's like real magic and it was shocking when it came out. And even the live studio audience got a big kick out of it. Ed, I'm really interested to to know your relationship with uh, Dennis Haskins because you you were the the two uh, you know static adults on on the set at the time. Um, you know, my, my experience of uh, having looked back at at these episodes is I really appreciate his comedic timing, um, and 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 he, he was on point and just his commitment to the comedy. Um, I'd, I'd love to get your take of you know how you felt about Dennis at that time? Well, Dennis was, at least I felt, this is only coming from my, my side. Dennis, I'll, I'll start by saying Dennis and I, after Saved by the Bell, became much better friends. Dennis was always really watching his own back to make sure that there were no other adults that came into his camp to kind of steal away focus from what he was doing. He wanted to make sure that he was really the only adult that had uh, uh, many scenes, lines. And he was a, he's a great comedic actor, a really super talented guy. So that would be the only thing that I would say that, that was just my feeling is that I could always feel that he was trying to push me away a little bit. And he was always encouraging to the writers and other staff that my main attribute was being a magician and that's what I should be sticking to. I could always hear him saying, uh, you know, to the other writers, Oh, you know, he's got to do a magic thing here. Oh, there's got to be magic. And I was still in the mindset of like, I don't, you know, give me a joke here at least. Let, let me do a knock, knock joke, something. And <laughs> it was just nothing. Um, so I, I always had that tension, even the very first time when when we had the final audition for the new characters uh and brandon tartikoff was supposedly the decider and they had two of all the new characters there were two people up for max there were two kelly's there were two slaters and there were two jesse's because those were the new characters so there were two of each character sitting in this office hallway over at nbc waiting to go in to read for staff writers, Peter, and Brandon Tartikoff, the king at that time. And I remember Dennis coming in, saying hello to everyone, introducing himself. And right away, I felt a tension of, he was happy to have more kids on the show, but was not so excited about seeing a new character come in that was going to be an adult. 
And I don't know what the full story is on Miss Bliss, but the Max character kind of takes the place of, um, and I don't remember the actor's name. He used to be on, uh, on Punky Brewster. And yeah, was Milo. Milo. Yeah. I felt that when I was watching those episodes, that Max was a combination of me and Milo as the big brother kind of helping out. And I had always gotten the opinion that Milo was probably not liked so much by Dennis either because he huh. felt maybe a little bit of competition. Now, this is just my own thought. No one has yeah, ever of course. Sure. me. But I know times that I've hung out with Dennis, um, even at his birthday party many years ago at uh, a place where he used to do karaoke, I went to his birthday party and I was standing there talking to him, wishing him happy birthday and how it's been great that we've been friends all these years. And people would come up and say hello to him and would say happy birthday. And he would just introduce me. He's like, oh, this is my friend, Ed. But he would never say to all these people that were there who were obviously all big Saved by the Bell fans, hey, this is Ed. That's the guy that played Max. Now, the reason that I thought that he should have said that is because I look nothing like the Max character in person. <laughs> Unlike you guys, I can go anywhere all over the world with a baseball hat on, with my hair covered up, and no one knows anything because it's a very specific look. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you that I can go anywhere with a baseball hat because I did not have the, I, you know, I don't have blonde hair. Did you know that that wasn't my yeah, real, that's true. did you know that I had to get my hair dyed? Yeah. Oh, I, from the first day, I remember that was like a big issue. It had to be done professionally <laughs> and it was a whole crew. It was a whole has, hazmat team that came in. Uh, like Monsters, Inc. that would do your hair. It was perfect. Um, <laughs> so it's held up a lot of uh, the shooting schedule, getting that hair right. <laughs> but no, of course I knew that. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is you guys are totally still recognizable. And I go out and, there, and sometimes somebody will give me a second look and go like, eh, I don't know. But it's really the glasses and the spiky hair. And it's it's the same as if you see like a, you know, a TSA agent in his uniform, and then you see him the next week in regular clothes, you probably wouldn't recognize them. It's a very specific uniform that Max had, the tuxedo coat, the apron, the red or the black t-shirt. Um, so out of that, those things stripped away. There were even times during our first seven episodes where just for fun, we would go up to the front doors at NBC where all the people were hanging out there and kind of wave at them or whatever, get a little commotion going. And no one ever recognized me. They'd be like, you know, they'd be grabbing at you, grabbing at Mario, screech up. But yeah, it was it was a very strange ride for me. But nothing that I ever look back and go, you know, that I'm ashamed of it or it was all great times. I just I think that if I had made some different decisions, the Max character could have gone in a different direction. Was there anything that really stu stood out to you in this? Because uh, uh, I know you rewatched it, and thank you for doing that. Uh, was there anything that stood out to you uh, in this that you that might have sparked a uh, memory? Yeah, you know, I was the thing that is so fun for me is that how I, about the fact that Kelly had six boyfriends? Did that did that uh, <laughs> that was did that disturb you as much as it disturbed me? That's just a little strange for for what was to be a pilot episode. Yeah, that's not the way to uh, to put Kelly out there. I, you know, that episode, <laughs> there's so many fun things in that episode. Like when that poster comes down in your bedroom 
I mean, that's just awesome. That is the Zach Morris way. Every other kid has a, a picture of, you know, Cheryl Teagues or whoever would have been popular at that time, uh, just on the tack on their wall. But to have this come in that way was so Zach-like. And then I remember, you know, the big thumbs up um, when they, you know, it was written, oh, Max gives gives uh, Zach a thumbs up, but he's got a big thumb on. I was like, where am I going to find this big thumb? And then as I was kind of rummaging through my old props, I remember there was a game when I was a kid that where you, I think it was called don't smash the thumb or hit the nail on the hammer. But anyway, you'd put your thumb on this, on this game board and everyone else would have a hammer and they would try and smash your thumb before you could steal away this flap chip. It was, it was a, a Mattel game. So, but I had the thumb around from that. And it's so weird now that I look at that scene and I go, that's the famous thumb from this toy game where you smack the hammer. It's because the only thumb that was like available at that time that was without going out and making some, something custom, uh, that was the giant thumb. Did they ever help you make any of your custom props? Did they, or, or reimburse you for some of your props? Well, yeah, here was what the process was. I would get the script Friday night after the taping and Saturday and Sunday and basically Monday, I would either have to make the stuff myself and they would reimburse me with whatever it was, but I would always make it myself. And if it was too complicated, then I had uh, the prop guys, Chuck Hughes and some of the other people jump in um, and, and take over. You know, we had antennas popping out of my head. Uh, you know, for the alien episode and of course stuff like that. I had Chuck make um, who still makes props for me all the time. Even to this day, I, one of my best friends ever is, is Chuck Hughes, this great prop builder who started off making props for Johnny Carson and then Jay Leno for the tonight show. And then ultimately saved by the bell. Um, so yeah, he would help me make stuff. So my whole weekend was not relaxing and memorizing my four words that I would say next week, <laughs> but building magic props out of paper or going and trying to rent a chicken someplace or trying to find brand new baby chicks uh, that would be not too big by the time Friday came along. So my weekend was just filled with getting the props together for just about every episode. Maybe there were three or four where I had help um, but you know, that was my own doing. I said to the writers, Hey, write whatever you want. And so that was my curse. Ed, thank you again for, for everything It's fascinating. And we'd love to have you back. This is a wealth of information. Yeah. I get a lot of fun stories. <laughs> um, just what stood out to me as we, uh, sort of go through the, the end of act two and through act three, um, Mrs. Simpson is back played by Pamela Kosh, who I just found out she passed away October 21st of this year. So that's the news. Pamela Kosh no longer with us, but we are still enjoying her work. Um, and it's interesting that they're doing a Shakespeare lesson because in the other episode with Mrs. Simpson, they're doing Shakespeare, but it's like a continuation of this lesson. There's some weird continuity stuff. For a show that was not intended to make all the way full sense, they seemed like they were trying. Like Mrs. Simpson teaches Shakespeare. It's in multiple episodes. Um, and building the neat freak. That gets introduced when Zach is in uh, his office, Mark Paul, you mentioned kind of messing with messing with Dennis's like pencils specifically. Yeah, yeah. That that came from a line in the script. I that was I, I like like Danny Tanner on Full House is a neat freak. He is someone who's always cleaning, and that's his character. Dennis or Mister Belding, it seems like they added it here, but 
but it doesn't really go anywhere other than his desk is in order every time. Um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too because when we, we brought it up, uh, I think it was like maybe the first or second episode where I brought up the pencils that I used to mess with it. Um, I didn't know that that stemmed actually from something the writers wrote for Mr. Belding um, and Dennis continued you know, through the run of the series. Um, so it's interesting to, to know where, where, it, uh, you know, where it started and, and how he continued with it. Started in the pilot. Yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly fascinating. Um, and, and yeah, and the other, only other real note uh, which Mark Paul, you already mentioned, is that Zach has waited through six of Kelly's boyfriends in two years, which no judgment, everyone live your life, do what you're going to do. But who racks up six boyfriends in middle school? That just seems like a lot. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the term I would use. It seems like a lot of boyfriends. Not even going to go there, Dashiell. I just point things out and allow right. other people to make comments. But yeah. uh, it- <laughs> Other people draw the conclusions. Yes, they will. they will connect the dots. Uh, I thought that, but that's also kind of like, you don't picture Zach in this kind of like, you know, you hear the term like friend zone. Like he's like off to the sides waiting for his move, like a game of double dutch or something. Uh, I just thought that was interesting because Zach seems to be very, like he knows what he wants. He wants Kelly. That's the drive of the show. Yeah. And we've also talked about, you know, Zach with his, um, the voice cracking trope uh, started here in the pilot with, uh, you know, me, me cracking my voice uh, talking to Kelly. Right. Yeah, in the in the fuzzy pink fantasy, is that or is it another time? No, it was actually in the max. Oh, the um, she says it was hot playing volleyball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a there's also another adult joke when when Kelly is performing the Heimlich on Screech, and Screech is like, "Was it good for you?" Oh, right. That's a that was it good for you. That's a very yeah. adult joke for a show about children. Uh, I'll just say that. Well, it was probably we we probably have learned that it was probably Ed's joke, and they just took it away right. from from was, him and gave it to Dustin. Yeah. It was originally my joke, um, <laughs> and uh, I said, "No, you can't, you can't do that." And uh, they did it anyway. They they, they stole it. They, those those thieving those thieving <laughs> bastards, uh, which was the working title of this podcast. But we we decided to switch it up to something more fun. Before we get to the conclusion of the show, where where Dash will ask asks me the the you know every, every episode he asks me a question that I have no answer to but do i know what's coming up the next episode uh before yes. we get to that a pointless uh, Ed, question <laughs> a pointless question but he he's been you know sticking with it for 16 episodes well done um <laughs> Ed, i just want to say thank you so much for taking the time uh it, it was so great to see you when we we filmed the the reboot you haven't changed uh i i think the 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 fans of our show and hopefully some new new uh fans will uh really appreciate the reboot and the work that you do in that um uh and and uh, again the door is open we'd love to have you on uh again um and please just just know that we're we're so thankful for all the the stories that you put out there in the, in the time oh uh, that's great thanks so much yeah this was this was awesome i'm happy to return anytime another guest can't make it <laughs> <laughs> Call me at any time. No, you know how this works. And I don't know if the audience is aware of how this works though, Ed, but I don't watch the shows until the day we film, we, we tape these on a Sunday. I don't start watching these shows until roughly about 8 a.m., 9 a.m. in the morning. And as I'm watching the show, I think like, oh my God. And I think that's when I text you. I said, are you around? Because I thought this would be a great opportunity to organically have you on the show. Um, That's the pitch of our shows. I I honestly have not seen an episode uh, since we filmed them. And 
I, you know, Dashiell's going to ask me what the next episode is about and this, you know, uh, in, in a second here, but that's why it may feel like, you know, a, a guest drops out. Well, we don't book the guests until sometimes like for you a few hours before. Right. Um, because it, it just, I, I, I can't put the homework in until, uh, uh, this Sunday I might, you know, my, my show mixed dish, I work on from Monday through Friday and I try to keep it, uh, kind of as alive as possible. So I, I wait till the last minute to watch the shows. I put a lot of, and it also puts a lot of work on a dashel. <laughs> Trying to break this back one episode at a time. <laughs> it's weird that, you know, you say that you, you have not watched a lot of the episodes over the years and I'm the same way. I, a lot of times, you know, I never saw them when they originally aired. And the first time that I saw chunks of episodes was after we did the first seven episodes, they asked us if we wanted uh, a dub of the shows. And they said, you know, what shows do you want? And I said, well, I don't want the the whole show. I just want the segments that I'm in. So some poor editor had to edit <laughs> out the rest of the show. And I got a, a three quarter inch tape that was like 15 minutes of just my bits from all of season one, um, which they must've thought like, wow. So that's all I had seen for years and years and years until later when it went into syndication, it was just like playing seven to 10 times a day. Uh, and then I would watch whole episodes and, and, and see the work, which is great. Great show. See, I, I would like the complete opposite. I would like the editors to give me the show, but take all my parts out of it. <laughs> That's <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, uh, talking about the show that we're going to just keep on watching, next week's episode is called Save That Tiger. It's the finale of season one. Uh, Mark Paul, I'm not even going to ask. You have no idea what's going on in this episode. When you say save the tiger, I know that we are the Bayside Tigers. Maybe we're trying to save the school. Um, yeah. That's that's all I got for you. I I appreciate the honesty. Look for the juggling. Look for the juggling. Got it. It's during the beat, the beat, the ba beat. It's during that thing. Oh, I I can't get it out of my head. It's a nightmare. It is. Well, I'm sorry. We have to relive your nightmare, <laughs> but it. we will do it. We will do it next week. Thank you again, Ed, so much. Uh, thank you, the listener. Thank you, Mark Paul, and we'll see you next week. Zach to the Future is a production of Cadence Thirteen. It's executive produced by Mark Paul Gosler, myself, and Chris Corcoran. Production and direction led by Terrence Malingone. Editing and mastering by Andy Jaskowitz. Engineering and production coordination by Sean Cherry. Artwork by Kurt Courtney with illustrations by Jeff McCarthy. Marketing is led by Josephina Francis with PR by Hilary Shoup. Thanks to the whole team at Cadence 13 and to you for listening.